Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today, and we welcome you here today in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here today, and I'm looking forward to spending some time in Scripture with you today. We're going to look in the book of Isaiah. If you'll find a Bible close to you there, if you don't have one with you, you'll notice this one in the pew rack in front of you. Isaiah is about this far through the Bible, a little bit past halfway. If you don't own a Bible, there's that one in the pew rack. Let's consider that our gift to you today, and we'd be glad if you'd take that home. You can find the page numbers for today's passage of Scripture on the screen behind me. As we um, are looking there and looking for Isaiah, I want to tell you that I came across a story just in the last uh, week or so that's kind of captured my attention. It comes out of just a little after the Civil War about a young woman who began to publish poems that were considered somewhat scandalous at the time. She wrote about the differences between men and women and particularly the role that women played in men's lives and then vice versa. And one poem after her death really became her trademark. Her name is Mary Lathrop, L-A-T-H-R-A-P, and she wrote this asking about how men relate to women. She said, do you know you've asked for the costliest thing ever made by the hand above? A woman's heart and a woman's life and a woman's wonderful love. So she's kind of, obviously some suitor is coming along and, she's, and then she goes, well, while, while that's going on, here's what you are. You require a cook for your mutton and beef. I require a far better thing. A seamstress you're wanting for your socks and shirts. I look for a man and a king. I'm fair and young, but the rose will fade from my soft young cheek one day. Will you love me then mid the falling leaves as you did mid the bloom of May? It's a reasonable question that seems appropriate uh, for men and women as they're thinking about perhaps marriage. And, uh, but I want to remind you that in those days, that kind of questioning on the part of a woman would not normally be spoken out loud. This was long before there was any sense of equality between the genders. And her comments go even further. As a matter of fact, at one point she says, a loving woman finds heaven or hell on the day she is made a bride. <sighs> wow. How truthful is that? I don't know, ladies. You help us out. Right? A laundress and a cook you can hire with little to pay, but a woman's heart and a woman's life are not to be won that way. Hmm. Now, you're, some of you are saying, Wayne, this is the weekend before Christmas. We're supposed to be doing Advent. We've had this lovely Advent reading, and you're going to start off with this lady's questions about life and about marriage and about relationships, and you're going, what's that got to do with where we are? Well, I want you to be aware that Mary Lathrop... Her understanding of life has a very important impact upon the passage of Scripture, that what we're, what we're going to read today. What we're doing is we're reading from Isaiah chapter 7, and this is a passage of Scripture that was written some 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. And as has been our practice throughout all of Advent, we're looking in the book of Isaiah for some titles that are given to Jesus. And in weeks past, we've looked at a variety of them. Last week from Isaiah 42, we looked at the divine servant that Jesus is, and we found that in Isaiah 42. We've also looked uh, at the titles that we see in Isaiah 9, like on the, on the scroll behind me where it says in Isaiah verse, chapter 9, verse 6, that unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And here's four titles. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But there's another title that's mentioned in Isaiah 7. 
that we're going to discover together as we read it. But before we read it, I just want to give you a little of the setting in case you're new with us over the last few weeks going back to November some things that we've learned together. Namely, that this passage of Scripture that we're reading is 2,700 years old, and the Bible records what happened in history 2,700 years ago. And namely, as we step into Isaiah chapter 7, you need to know that the people living in Jerusalem, in, in the nation of Israel, or what we would call in that period of time the nation of Judah, they were living in great fear. They were incredibly worried about what was going on because there were armies coming from the north. The Assyrians were literally obliterating nations in front of their army. And so they had the Assyrians coming from the north, a number of other armies coming from the south, and the people in Jerusalem thought that their days were numbered, which in fact they were. Read with me Isaiah chapter 7. In the midst of this fear, this is what we read. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, so we're talking about a fellow of Ahaz, the son of Uzziah was king in Judah, so we're talking, we know who the king is in Jerusalem, his name is Ahaz. King Razan of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramali, a king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So these armies are coming, but they haven't yet overtaken Jerusalem. Now the house of David was told. We say the house of David because David had been king at 1,000 B.C. We're now into into the 700s, some 250, 300 years later. And uh, the, the family of David has been ruling on the throne in Jerusalem for those centuries. And so the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. The people in Jerusalem are terrified. There's great fear. They are shaking like this, if you will, like a tree, like trees in the wind. And in the midst of that, Isaiah comes along, the fellow who wrote this book, and he says, I've got some really good news for you. God has told me to quell the riot in your hearts. There's good news from heaven. God is watching over the city and The story we have from Isaiah, that Isaiah was to go to the king with a divine message and say, pay attention to me and we might make, you'll make it through this sort of thing. But here's the problem. The bad part is the king did not want to listen. This Ahaz guy, he was in fact a very, very bad dude. Few leaders in human history have rivaled his penchant for wickedness. We know that throughout his life he offered at least one, if not more, of his own sons in the fire as a sacrifice. He plundered God's temple on a regular basis, stealing whatever seemed value. He was a hardcore, a hardcore idolatry addict. He put up altars to false gods. He sponsored worship to these false gods that had come in from neighboring pagan nations. And it was all folly and foolishness, unfaithfulness on his part. And that folly and that unfaithfulness left Judah both vulnerable and in the long run, because he didn't listen to what God had to say, it cost Judah, literally hundreds of thousands of people were killed as a result. People died as a result of his folly. And yet, on the other hand, Isaiah is saying, God is watching. If you'll listen, there's a way out. And to prove that heaven was watching, and to prove that God disapproved of Ahaz's approach to spirituality and leadership, Isaiah said, there's a sign coming. 
that you can take, you can see the sign that's going to come and it, you can read this sign in one of two ways, either good news that God's going to intervene, that God's going to show up, or if you don't want God to be watching, then it's bad news because that means judgment is coming. God's going to show up regardless, but you either welcome him or you accept him with resentment. And if you accept him with resentment, it's bad news. Read with me chapter 7, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So I'm, give me, I'll give you a sign, heaven says, to tell you that I'm going to be involved in this. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah says, oh, you're such a silly man because God is sending a sign and you better get ready. You either accept the sign that God's going to get engaged or you reject it. And that sign is coming regardless. And Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also, you silly man? Therefore, here's the sign that is coming. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, when we hear this passage, we hear good news. We hear the virgin's going to give birth to a son. And we immediately, legitimately jump to Christmas time. And we go, Mary's going to have a baby and she's going to call him Emmanuel. And when we hear this, we hear this title that is given to Jesus. Here's one of these titles that is in the book of Isaiah given to Jesus. We hear this title as a comfort to us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. The people of Jerusalem were desperate to have God show up. Just Ahaz didn't want that. What it, mean, what it means to us when we hear it, though, is that God himself showed up with tissue and hair and nails and bones. And it's a comfort for us to know 2,000 years later, when in fact, after Jesus' birth, when in fact our world seems to be swirling with the same idea that there are armies at war with one another, we get good news that God came wrapped in skin and bones and human emotions and human intellect simply to reach into our lives. But for Ahaz, mm -mm, it was a fear because these are the kind of questions that this brought to him, this sign that was coming. If the sign showed up, did that mean that God really was watching? What if God's going to step into my kingdom, he would think, and he would come into my kingdom with retribution? What if my wickedness brings disaster? What if Emmanuel would be born, namely God with us? Wouldn't God then know of the wicked life of Ahaz? And wouldn't that mean judgment? Which frankly, of course it did because, because of his foolishness, thousands of people died. But for us though, when we see this prophecy fulfilled, this Emmanuel born of a virgin, when we hear of God's willingness to step into our lives, when we hear of God's heart for the people of Ahaz's time, Isaiah's time, when we hear of God's heart for the people of Jesus' day, when we hear of God's heart for the people of our culture, for us, when we hear that a virgin will give birth and shall call him Emmanuel, for us, hearing of Emmanuel is news of great comfort and great joy. At least that's what we should experience, right? Here's why. Because the coming of a Christ child, this Christ child called Emmanuel, this sign from heaven is an indication of something that's really cool. Namely, God is interested in humanity's condition and God is engaged. But tragically, sadly, 
horrifically. Ahaz didn't want God to be engaged. He didn't want God watching and intervening and actually showing up. And that's why the news of Emmanuel, God with us, can actually at times be troubling for some. Oh sure, we all want peace and harmony and everybody, regardless of their spirituality, wants goodwill and peace to others, I would think, for the most part. But do we really want God to show up in the midst of us at all times? Emmanuel? Because sometimes we'd have to say, well, maybe not always, maybe not when our lives don't quite measure up to what we think God might want or God might expect. And the question in front of us today is, will we be like Ahaz, resenting Emmanuel's entrance into our story, or will we welcome him? Will we welcome God into our lives to be with us? I can't speak for you in that regard. I can't speak for myself. I can say that Wayne Kent, here's who I am. I would, I think most days, most days, I would like to say all days, but I'd say certainly at least most days, I welcome Emmanuel into my life for a lot of different reasons. I mean, there are some days where maybe I go, oh, I wish God wasn't seeing this, but for the most part, I'm going to say, God, will you show up in this moment? Because when you show up, when, you, when I welcome Emmanuel into my life, then you know what I'm saying? I'm acknowledging that God is not distant. Emmanuel, Jesus' birth, the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, you know what? It flies in the face of really poor pop theology that says God is watching us from a distance. No, God is not watching us from a distance. God is not distant. God is not distant, pardon me. God is involved in the middle of our lives. Emmanuel, God with us. Not God far away, but God right here. You know where, as a matter of fact? Right here. You want to know how close God is? God is as close as I'm willing to let him deep inside my soul, deep inside my spirit. And I've got really good news in that regard. If I'm welcoming Emmanuel into my life, then if God is with us, particularly as we believe that God came in Jesus Christ, then here's good news. Emmanuel, God with us, has walked in feet like yours and mine. And this is where the poetry of Mary Lathrop comes into play. You know, the Civil War era poet that I mentioned earlier. And to understand what I mean, we have to talk a little bit for just a few minutes about Elvis Presley. And some of you are going to just go way back right now. See, he recorded a song that has something to do with Mary Lathrop. Here are the, here's the words. If I could be you, if you could be me for just one hour, we could get inside each other's mind. Let's hear it just a little bit louder, just so that those who want to rock out can. Can you do your head, if nothing else? I believe it'd be, I believe it'd be surprised to see that you've been blind. Some of you are ready to just go. I mean, you're ready to get into it, right? It doesn't appear to be the case. Everybody's being really quiet right now. Okay, I want you to know, I'd never heard of that song till this past week. Just want to make it clear. Just as I started working on this, this I did doing some research and this kind of came to mind. So, that business of walk a mile in my shoes... You've heard that saying probably, or something like this, like walk a mile in another man's moccasins. You've heard that and you understand who he is. Uh, and 
we've, I think it's part of American folklore that there's a Native American proverb that says something to the fact that if you walk in someone, a mile in someone else's moccasins, you're going to understand their lives. And that's certainly what the song from Elvis was about. And, but can I tell you, uh, we've been fooled. We've been fooled as Americans. We think that's a Native American proverb, but it's not at all. As a matter of fact, what happened was a, a, a man who was an expert in Native American uh, culture in the 1920s and 30s started telling people that this statement, walk a mile in another man's moccasins, was an American um, Indian uh, proverb. Never was. He used to go around the country in the 20s and 30s and say, never criticize the other boy or girl unless you've walked a mile on his moccasins. And he was known to recommend that if you believed in that statement, you could solve 95% of all the country's problems. But in fact, it was never part of Native American culture. He misled the nation. I don't know why, but we all bought into it. Actually, the language comes from Mary Lathrop, the poetess, from the end of the Civil War. With her views of marriage and womanhood during that period of time, she was the one who penned the idea that we should walk a mile in someone else's shoes in order to know and understand the other person's life. And here's the point today. When we say God in Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, it's an announcement given 2,700 years ago that God walks in humanity's shoes. God knows about our lives. Jesus Christ came in bodily form. He knows about our lives. He knows about your life. He knows about my life. And that worried Ahaz 2,700 years ago. For me, I welcome the news of Emmanuel's arrival. We call it the incarnation, God in the flesh. But if you didn't want God to show up, then God in the flesh showing up is more like, well, the incarnation then is an invasion. Because the eternal Son of God becomes human to reclaim God's creation from self-centered usurpers like you and like me. And God comes in the form of Jesus Christ to restore God's cosmos where he gets to be the rightful and legitimate ruler. If you could think of it this way in terms of an invasion, Jesus' birthday is God's D-Day. God is invading the forces of evil coming across the English channel of, of eternity and to land in our lives. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you will, as one of his foot soldiers, then I'm going to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring this war of struggle and fear and heartache to an end soon. We still wait for all the implications of the arrival of Jesus Christ. I do. I imagine you do, too. Let me see if I can bring this home to you a little bit uh, more in a different way today. I, am, I regularly have people visit me in my office. Um, sometimes people come in and they're chatting about church matters and there are decisions that need to, be, need to be made and some of those decisions impact all of our lives together. But then there are other, those, uh, other times when I take off that leadership hat, if you will, and I put on a pastoral care hat. And you can imagine that people come in with all kinds of things that they want to talk to me about. About their private lives, about vocational decisions, about relational issues, about all kinds of stuff. Trust me, in 30 years of doing pastoral ministry, sitting across the desk from dozens of people, I think I've heard lots of stories. And lots of those stories are stories where, um, well, sometimes people walk in the room and they go, 
They look in, in the room and they go, you know, I've never been in this sort of office before. They'll say, like in a pastor's office. And so they say, I feel like I'm being called into the principal's office. Well, I want to go, well, first of all, you called me, so I'm not the principal. <laughs> and this is this weird dynamic for a while. But what's fascinating to me, though, since if those conversations are going to take place, they know it, I may not. But invariably, for some, they walk, literally the door opens, and I greet them, I shake their hand, whatever, give them a hug, and they start to be emotional immediately. I'm, and sometimes then they sit down across the desk from me, and these stories come out. That, man, by the time they're done, I'm crying with them. All right? And I, and I understand that that's part of how all my role in people's lives and the, my responsibilities I have. But as those stories spill out and flow in tears across the desk toward me, I'm aware that those life stories are not the same as my life story. I'm aware, for example, that I've not had the life of a single parent. I'm aware I've not had the life or the experience of a widow or a widower. I'm aware that I've not had the life of some professions that have moments of hardship. For example, I'm aware I've not had the life of a plumber who's called out in the middle of winter at 3 o'clock in the morning to fix freezing pipes. I pray that never happens to me. I'm aware I've not had the life of a soldier fighting the fear in the midst of battle. I'm aware that I've not had the life that a police officer has as they have to make a choice right there in that moment to shoot or not to shoot. I'm aware I've not had the life of a school teacher facing perhaps an unruly or uncontrollable classroom. I'm aware I've not had the life of a business executive who has to answer to the angry, disappointed shareholders in a shareholders meeting. I'm aware I've not had the life of a woman. I'm never gonna have the life of a woman who's in the middle of labor. I promise you, I'm never doing that. I'm aware I've not had the life of a parent whose adult children are failing to walk with Christ. And I'm aware I've not had the life of a child living, living with parents who couldn't care less. I'm aware I've not had the life of a home where the cupboards are bare. And I've had all those stories come to me across the desk, across the desk and others. But I'm also aware of this. That while I've never had that view of life, the Son of God, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God with us, has walked in human shoes, and God is aware, and God is invading those settings through the coming of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Let me see if I could help you think of it one other way yet today. Take a look at the photograph that's about to appear on the screen. It's a great photo, isn't it? I love it. One sheep among many. Why has that got some importance for us today? Well, see, one day early in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb. A Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, I should say. But he, John identifies Jesus as a Lamb, if you will. And I, I like that photograph because this photo of a Lamb thinks, like, makes me think of that. That that Lamb, as that Lamb is Emmanuel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if Emmanuel means God with us, then there's God right among us, his sheep. 
See, we are so often engaged with the stuff of life that we live like the sheep in that photograph with our heads down, focusing on the details of life, and perhaps legitimately so. But I'm really glad this. I'm glad of this, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the same God who is Emmanuel, God with us, is the same God who keeps his head up in the midst of my fray of my life, keeping watch over me. Perhaps you're familiar that come Thursday night, when we tell the Christmas story, one of the things we'll hear is the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Have you ever heard that language before? Uh, there were shepherds in the story of Christmas. We know that our Heavenly Father is the great shepherd. And that photo would say to me, this metaphor then, if you will, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, the great shepherd, keeps watch over his flock, namely you and me. He keeps watch over his flock by day and by night. And this week, I say, come Lord Jesus, invade, invade, invade. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Emmanuel that uh, <laughs> I guess you could say Elvis figured it out. Walk a mile in my shoes. Emmanuel came and walked more than just a mile in my shoes, Lord. He walked all the way from heaven to the cross. Huh. And consequently, I don't have to go quite to the cross. In the moments of the hell of my life, God, I thank you that Jesus walks there. Lord, in the moments of great bliss of my life, I thank you that Jesus walks there. You sent us Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I don't want to be like Ahaz. Instead of pushing away, I want to embrace. Help me to do that. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.